Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For thousands of years, tracking animals meant following footprints. Now, satellites, drones, camera traps, cell phone networks, and accelerometers reveal the natural world as never before. A new book called Where the Animals Go offers a comprehensive data-driven portrait of how creatures like ants, otters, owls, turtles, and sharks navigate the world. Based on pioneering research by scientists at the forefront of the animal tracking revolution, James Cheshire and Oliver Roberti's charts and maps tell fascinating stories of animal behavior, explaining how warblers detect incoming storms using sonic vibrations, how baboons make decisions, why storks prefer garbage dumps to wild foliage. They follow pythons racing through the Everglades, a lovelorn wolf traversing the, wild, the, the Alps, and humpback whales visiting undersea mountains. Uh, in the second half today, we're going to bring the conversation back to Utah, talking with David Stoner, researcher with USU's Quinney College of Natural Resources, and Daniel Olson, wildlife migration coordinator with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. In the first half, however, we'll go next to a conversation with the authors of this book, uh, James Cheshire and Oliver Uberti. James Cheshire is associate professor at University College London and the 2017 recipient of the Royal Geographic Society's Cuthbert Peak Award for advancing geographical knowledge through the use of mappable big data. His maps have appeared in Financial Times and The Guardian. Oliver Roberti is an award-winning designer and visual journalist. He's a former senior design editor for National Geographic. And uh, uh, Cheshire's and Uberti's best-selling debut, London, the Information Capital, won three British Cartographic Society Awards for cartographic excellence. Here's my conversation uh, with James Chester and Oliver Uberti. We bring in now uh, Oliver Uberti and uh, James Cheshire. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks for, Thanks for having us. Let me uh, let me start if I could with uh, with you, Oliver Uberti. You tell a uh, moving story in the preface to the book about an elephant named Annie, and and th- that's a controversy. I guess a mild controversy, perhaps. There's some debate in the scientific world about whether we ought to name the animals we're tracking or not. There is some debate over that. I, I personally think, after talking to many scientists uh, around the world to produce this book, that that debate has been put to rest. I mean, Jane Goodall's been naming chimpanzees since she first started her breakthrough research in Gombe, and... Uh, I went to Kenya uh, to join Save the Elephants on some tracking expeditions. Got to spend some time with Ian Douglas Hamilton, pioneer of animal tracking technology, really, um, at least for large terrestrial animals. And he told me, you know, it's just easier to um, remember names, right? You might call an elephant Zeus or Apollo or Clint Eastwood, but it stops having that original meaning as soon as you put the name on the elephant. Um, they, you know, they're very aware of these ideas of anthropomorphization, but um, in my experience, you know, Monterey Bay Aquarium and many other uh, research institutions, they were calling all these animals by first names and pronouns like he and she. And you say you write in the preface, uh, Annie's story was the first time a map had ever engaged me in the life of an individual animal and the shift in consciousness it provoked was irreversible. Absolutely. I mean, I worked on that a little over 10 years ago when I was a designer for National Geographic. And after James and I completed our first book uh, about data and the the traces that humans leave behind in the city of London uh, for a book called London, the Information Capital, we were wondering what to work on next. And I started to remember um, that map, that map that had never really left my mind. And it's a map of Annie's journey um, 
she was uh, tracked with a GPS collar for 86 days and over a thousand miles in south southeastern Chad, a country in northern Africa, because the researchers wanted to know how vulnerable um, elephants were to poaching outside uh, the national park boundaries. And at the end of her journey, uh, well, her journey came to an end when her GPS tracker stopped moving. And when the researchers went to the last recorded GPS location to investigate what happened, they found the tattered corpses of um, Annie and eight of her companions. And, and, the, and the important thing for me was that this wasn't just a red line on a map that I was creating. This was the life of an individual animal. This was Annie. And I thought, how incredible and potentially impactful it could be if we shared more stories of the lives of individual animals with the public. What if we, we dug through scientific journals and talked to researchers all over the planet to, to bring together a series of maps that will allow you to follow the lines, the lives of individual animals. We can see individuality in our pets, but it's so much harder to see in the wild. And uh, we hope this book can shift that thinking. Jim Chester, I wonder uh, we could uh, talk. You, you had this at the end of your book, so fascinating. There's uh, in your first book is uh, essentially mapping humans. Um, and there is interconnection. You know, scientists uh, learn from each other. The scientists that essentially map humans, and the scientists that are tracking uh, animals. Uh, so I wonder if we could uh, talk a little bit about that at the beginning, and then get into tracking animals. Um, you do some. You've done some fascinating work. Um, you know, we don't call her humans, but we, but we all carry around cell phones and such, and there's a lot we can tell mapping humans. There is. I mean, there's, you know, there's analogies between us and the animal kingdom. We, we each have a thing called a home range, for example. So, you know, if you're a bear in some woods, you may uh, cover a certain area to get the food and provisions you need, and scientists develop um, techniques to guess what that, that area is likely to be. Um, if we move into the human sphere, it's not so different. We have places of work, places we go uh, to buy groceries, places we go uh, to hang out in the evenings. And as, as humans, we're actually quite predictable in some, in some respects. You can think about what you've done for the, the last couple of weeks and your daily routine may not change as uh, much as you uh, perhaps first thought. So if we can track uh, people and we can uh, see where they uh, live and work and uh, play, we can apply the same techniques and we can find out better information about, you know, if you want to build a new hospital, you know, where are the people in the area, where are they visiting, um, where would be the best location for that hospital or equally a, a supermarket or, um, you know, doctor's surgery or even school. So, the techniques are, are very similar, and uh, as you say, we're actually tracking ourselves all the time now. Mobile phone technology is exactly the same technology uh, as we load into the uh, animal tags, and uh, we use fitness apps to monitor our exercise and activity levels. We send each other locations uh, over text or WhatsApp or other kind of messaging services, and it's all a big uh, treasure trove of data, really, that we can uh, mine and we can better understand uh, the way the, the, the world works. I mean, one, one recent example that just came out last week was um, in London. The, London. the people that run the London Underground system, the Tube, 
they uh, looked at the routes people were taking between two stations on that network, and they discovered that people choose about 20 different uh, versions of, of, of the route. And so if we can understand that, we, we know which stations are major interchanges, and we can improve those stations for the people traveling through them. Uh, just to follow up, uh, James Chester, um, I was interested in reading that uh, chapter. Uh, just as with uh, animals, it's useful in humans to, uh, to to get a baseline, right? What's normal and then what diverges from that normal. And some scientists are thinking uh, perhaps if we uh, do that kind of... Um, um, you know, tracking or, or, or data gathering, we could help uh, people with uh, depression. Yeah, so this is um, work of a, a colleague of mine, um, Mirka Musilisi, and he uh, developed, uh, he and his team uh, developed an app that um, people um, who suffered from um, depression were able to uh, download and install on their phone, and it was part of a broader trial of this technology. And um, there's, there's thinking about how uh, people's behavior, how their movements may change depending on their state of mind, whether they um, you know, travel long distances, whether they stay closer to home, whether they do things that are slightly abnormal um, uh, compared to their, de- uh, their daily routine. And you know, the app uh, can provide that information and it can help your doctor uh, understand a bit more about your your behaviors. I mean, another example that um, has been kind of widely deployed now is things like if you have um, uh, a relative who suffers from Alzheimer's disease or uh, dementia and they sometimes struggle um, with navigation, they get confused, they maybe walk off um, away from from their home, you can have an app on their phone or some kind of device that sends you a text message and says, um, hey, you know, your your aunt or grandfather or grandmother is in an area that we wouldn't expect them to be. Maybe you should go and check in with them and see that they're okay. Yeah, amazing, fascinating where, where this is going. Let me turn back to uh, James Uberti. Um, you, you uh, two of you write in the book that we've for a long time been tracking animals, right? According from the book, 1803, John James Audubon was tying threads to the legs of songbirds in order to prove that the same individuals return to his farm each spring. And you, you go through, uh, you know, some of the things. I wonder where have we gotten to now? It's, it's, a, it's a lot of new technology. Sure. Um, many of the examples in the book uh, involve what we call tagging, or what is known as tagging, wherein a scientist has attached a device to an animal. Um, we also have some other just incredible innovations from these re- researchers uh, using magnetic fields um, to detect where badgers move in their burrows underground because GPS doesn't penetrate the ground. You need to come up with a new technology to do that. Um, putting individual QR codes on the backs of ants to track every ant in the entire colony. Um, then the researchers set up high-definition cameras to then uh, essentially in a time-lapse, um, track all the barcodes and where they moved and, uh, over a 40-day period. So there's just incredible amounts of innovation happening right now that, um, are cap- that are possible because of the miniaturization of computing power, um, greater data analysis tools, um, greater transmission networks um, from, from cellular telemetry to satellite telemetry, um, GPS doesn't penetrate the water, so if you're tracking a, a shark, 
or another marine animal, um, depending on the, the longevity of your study. There's, there's def- different techniques for getting uh, that data up to a satellite and back to you, the researcher, in your lab. One of those is having a time release on the tag, so it releases off the animal at a predetermined time, floats, floats to the ocean surface, and transmits back home. But you know, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, the ingenuity of these researchers is, is boundless. Um, they're soon going to be pioneering uh, a project called Icarus, which uh, puts a, a receiver on the International Space Station to allow uh, near-real-time uh, tracking of animals all over the planet. Let me follow up with that. That sounds that sounds like that's good, just going to be a great step forward. That's uh, the limitless possibilities once they have that up. James, you want to pick up on that one? Yeah, just to jump in there. The um, the great thing about that uh, technology, that innovation, um, is that for the first time it provides a, a big kind of constellation of sensors uh, deployed in the wild that are all able to communicate with the International Space Station and then uh, beam that information in, in real time back to you know, researchers sat at their desks in different research institutions around the world. And um, because the, the thinking behind the project is if the um, enough sensors and tags are deployed, you can begin to look at interactions between animals. So you can look at predator-prey relationships, you can look at um, breeding relationships, um, and you can look at, you know, migration patterns of whole groups of animals rather than just individuals. And that wealth of data really provides uh, or could provide researchers with the information they need to to get the health of an ecosystem rather than just the health of a particular species. I want to uh, have, uh, I guess, either one of you talk about giraffes. You talk about it in the introduction, and it's it's the illustration that really resonated with me um, of there's a lot we don't know that we don't know, right? And we've hit this at least certain point with giraffes. Oh, yeah. I mean, giraffe, when you see illustrations of the jungle or of of wildlife, I mean, everybody loves giraffes. They're, they're all over the place. People have them in nurseries. They're in, in picture books. Um, you know, we love seeing giraffes at the zoo. Many people don't realize there are more than one species of giraffe. A recent genetic, genetic analysis that just came out in fall of 2016 revealed that there are four unique species of giraffe with different spot patterns, but more importantly, different genetic material, which means um, they can't interbreed. So uh, like giraffes are, uh, it's what researchers like Julian Fennessy from the Giraffe Conservation Foundation call, um, he calls it a silent extinction. We know that rhinos and elephants are under threat, but giraffes are increasingly being poached in, in high numbers in Africa for bushmeat um, or from some real crazy, uh, you know, ineffective you know, tr- traditional medicines that's, that happen when, when animals are trafficked all over the world. Um, there's rumors that giraffe brains and bone marrow can cure HIV AIDS, and it's just driven up the price uh, for the demand of, of killing these animals. Um, and the important thing to know here when you realize that there are four species of giraffe that are distinct is that you can't look at the entire population of giraffes and say that's under threat. You actually have four small populations um, that are even under greater threat because, because you can't interbreed them. 
and we also don't even real really know, um, despite how often we see giraffes and uh, when you're out in the wild, we the researchers are still just learning how they organize themselves into herds. Um, we don't know very well the extent of their range. Uh, we've got a great example uh, in the book that was, in fact, uh, the longest tracking study ever uh, of a giraffe uh, in Namibia. And the tracking technology really helps uh, researchers throughout Africa uh, counter poaching and by setting up, if you know where the giraffes are, then you know uh, where you need to deploy strategically your anti-poaching resources. And you also know where you can set up new parks and reserves to protect the giraffe and to make sure that you set up reserves in areas that the giraffes are actually using, um, where the food that they need uh, exists, as opposed to just arbitrarily saying, this is probably a, a piece of land that we should protect, and we hope that giraffes are there. Uh, now we can say, yeah, we know giraffes are here. We know giraffes need this place. We need to protect it. I want to ask each of you, uh, maybe a, a superlative, maybe to choose um, uh, you know, a, a chapter in the book, a, a specific study um, for specific species that, that jumped out of you, both in technology, perhaps, and or the uh, impact this will have ecologically. I'll start with this with uh, with James Chester. Is there one you'd, a story you'd especially like to tell? Well, one of the, I think, best illustrations of uh, how the technology can help us understand um, a whole group of animals is um, a story we have about a troop of baboons. So researchers were... Uh, able to tag um, the the majority of baboons that formed this uh, uh, troop in Africa. And um, what they were interested in is kind of two things. The first was just the general movements of them across the day, so where they start off on their, um, you know, in their sleeping trees or the sleeping site, how they uh, go out and forage and, and return uh, back in the evening. But crucially, they were interested um, in the really fine-scale, second-by-second decision-making that the baboons go through to decide where they go uh, any given any given moment. So you can the analogy we use, you know, you imagine you're out uh, in the evening with a group of friends, and uh, you want to decide where you want to go. Do you go into a restaurant? Some of you tailed off to use an ATM. You know, others are still. Uh, trailing behind, um, uh, trying to find a place to park or something. At what stage does everyone uh, come together and uh, decide where they're going to go? And the baboons have the same uh, decision uh, processes uh, to to take. And um, what the researchers found was um, it's the decision is not taken by a, an alpha male or an alpha female uh, baboon. It's not like the top guys decide uh, what they're going to do for the day. It's a much more democratic process. So um, the example we give is the baboon setting out on their kind of morning uh, commute. And uh, that whole process, that whole trip is initiated by um, a mother and a juvenile with the uh, the alpha male and female baboons kind of bringing up uh, the rear. So there's a, a democratic process that uh, either involves the baboons compromising on uh, where they go if, if there's uh, one group that that go hard left, one group that go hard right, they kind of come together, or if there's um, broad uh, agreement in the first place of where they want to go, they'll they'll uh, follow the majority uh, rule, as it says, uh, as they say, so where most of them are going. And this is um, 
really helpful because obviously you know lots of small decisions accumulate and, and can give you a, a, a have a much bigger impact across the course of the day and it's not um it's, it's thanks to kind of the recent technological uh, developments that mean that researchers can collect second-by-second second data sets um, and, and, as I say, just uh, look at that precise moment when one b- baboon decides to go uh, one way uh, and, and to see if the others follow. Yeah, it's amazing what we do with the with technology. Um, same question uh, to you, uh, Oliver Uberti. Uh, a story that stands out to you, both maybe by uh, the technology that's used, or by the, what we're learning, or both. We train. We tried to include uh, a real array of species um, in the book, and reptiles are often underrepresented in wildlife specials. And so, one of my favorite stories involves Burmese pythons. Uh, Burmese pythons, you might expect, uh, you know, in, in Southeast Asia. But in fact, what we're showing in the book is Burmese pythons in south, southern Florida, uh, around the Everglades and, uh, and Miami. And we talk about hurricanes that have been coming through, and there's been a lot of people wondering lately, like, what, where do the animals go during storms and hurricanes? Well, this is actually an example of what, where the animals go after a hurricane. Uh, pythons, were kept as pets in Florida, and when Hurricane Andrew uh, slammed through the state in the early 90s, these pythons got out. With few natural predators, they proliferated. It's very hard to find a rabbit in Florida because of tens to maybe uh, USGS estimates of maybe 100,000 pythons in the state. And various uh, approaches have been enacted to to remove some of these pythons, and one we discuss in the book, uh, researcher Shan Pittman uh, tried to see what happens if you relocate pythons. Say you've got one in your backyard, it's in your pool, you want to get it transported to the Everglades, let's drop it off far from um, housing developments. Well, the pythons, months later, um, slithered right back from whence they came. Uh, it's pretty incredible, um, just a straight line almost back to within a few kilometers of their capture location. And we got another story in the book of crocodiles that were relocated in Australia to the other side of a peninsula, and over a number of months, the crocodile just swam all the way around the peninsula right back to where he was captured. So this tells us that these reptiles have some map compass sense where they can, one, orient themselves to where they are, and where they need to be, and then two, stay on a compass bearing to get back there. I don't know many humans that can navigate so well in the Everglades. One of your chapters uh, has a very intriguing title. I have to ask you about it. The, the title is The Elephant Who Texted for Help. Somebody want to tell me that story? Sure. Um, we were talking earlier about um, the applications for humans of um, home range technology and accelerometers to know if uh, a loved one, um, you know, who's maybe suffering from dementia, um, wanders out of their traditional home range, and then we can deploy emergency um, medical care to go check in on them. Well, similar technology is being used by Save the Elephants uh, to combat um, poaching in, in parts of Africa. And basically how that works is there's an accelerometer in the GPS or an accelerometer in the in the tag, and that monitors the rate of movement of the elephant. And if, you know, heaven forbid, a uh, elephant is shot and uh, their movement slows down below a certain threshold, 
automatically a text message and an email are sent out to Save the Elephants and to the Kenyan Wildlife Service, and they can then respond and, and dispatch veterinarians to care for the animal and law enforcement if they think that the poachers are still nearby. I wonder, um, maybe uh, to turn to James Chester for this, there there is um, there's some discussion among scientists, right, about the ethics of, uh, of, of tagging. Maybe you go over the pros and cons. Yeah, so the, to be clear, I don't think any researchers we encountered uh, want, would tag, none of them would tag an animal unnecessarily. So they would have a, a clear rationale uh, for needing to do it, and um, they have very strict uh, ethical guidelines about how they go about doing it. So there's a, a rule of thumb that says any kind of tag that's deployed can't be any heavier than 3 to 5% of the animal's body weight so that it's not too encumbered by it. And if that, uh, you know, at all possible, the animal is not uh, captured for long or, or uh, put under any unnecessarily uh, unnecessary stress. So they're, they're very clear that they, um, you know, this is a, a serious, uh, uh, they need a serious reason for, for tagging animals in the first place. And that reason is often to, to better understand a population of animals so that they can be better conserved. So it's definitely the lesser of uh, two evils. You know, either you know nothing about the uh, whole species of animals and, and you don't know what to do to preserve them, or you can uh, tag a, a few individuals uh, to provide you with the kind of richness of data that you need. And as tags are getting smaller, um, they're, be, they're able to collect more data um, without um, you know, being even less of a burden on the animal. But also, the researchers are sharing data more and more between them. So uh, if there are two groups uh, of scientists who want to tag uh, say, a community of baboons, one of the examples we, we've discussed, then um, rather than uh, each of those groups going out and finding a different troop of baboons and, and tagging them, one group can go out uh, and deploy the tags, and then the other group can, can share the data. So that's half as many animals um, that have been tagged. And then the, the other thing um, I would say is actually increasingly um, the need for tags uh, can be diminishing in, in many examples. So citizen science projects, there's one called eBird, where um, birders get to uh, fill out information about uh, birds they've sighted in, in their local area. You know, the, the numbers of people that are contributing to that system mean that we can track whole species in, in near real time without the need for uh, tagging animals. And I, I spent some time um, with uh, a group of researchers off the south coast of Iceland who uh, were tracking killer whales and, and looking at their behavior and diet. And one of the great things about their research is uh, so many of their breakthroughs have been uh, driven by people posting uh, photographs and video footage of the whale's behavior on Facebook. So these are animals that have been uh, photoed by people on whale-watching trips or ferries uh, as they go from uh, different islands or even the coastline as they go for a walk. And they can see the animals um, in the wild. They take the photos. They put them on Facebook. The researchers can then look at those photos and compare them to the catalogs of individual animals they have. 
and they can already build up a rich map of uh, where the individual killer whales are and uh, what, what, what they're eating. We've been talking with the authors of an interesting new book, Where the Animals Go, Tracking Wildlife with Technology in 50 Maps and Graphics. And these authors also previously had a bestseller in London, The Information Capital. We'll be talking with James Chester and Oliver Uberti. Thanks, gentlemen, so much. Well, thank you. You're listening to Access Utah. We're going to bring the conversation home uh, to Utah in the next half of the program. Following a brief break, we'll be talking with David Stoner with USU's uh, Quinney College of uh, Natural Resources and Daniel Olson, who is Wildlife Migration Coordinator with Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. Programming on Utah Public Radio is also made possible in part by our members and the Moab Area Travel Council, whose support of tourism, events, and recreation in Grand County promotes and protects the natural beauty for visitors from across the state of Utah. Information available online at discovermoab.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Where the animals go, that's the focus of our program. We uh, talked in the first half hour of the program with authors of a book by that title. We're bringing the conversation home to Utah in the second half of the program. You're welcome to join the conversation here in the second half uh, by calling us at 800-826-1495 if you have a question or comment, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us in studio uh, David Stoner, who's a researcher with USU's Quinney College of Natural Resources. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Tom. And uh, we have with us also uh, Daniel Olson, Wildlife Migration Coordinator with Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here, Tom. I want to start uh, with you, Daniel. Um, maybe a transition. We talked about a lot of technology the first half of the program, advances in technology from, uh, you know, James Audubon's uh, String around the around the leg of a of a bird to uh, you know you got satellites and GPS and everything. I know you've been involved in a paper called this is the title "Monitoring Wildlife Vehicle Collisions in the Information Age: How Smartphones Can Improve Data Collection," which sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, so um, that was that was a project we worked on a few years ago with the Department of Transportation, and what the purpose of it was was to try to get a better idea on the number of wildlife vehicle collisions we have in the state. So our Department of Transportation does a good job of tracking that. They pay contractors to, to clean up the roads and to record that information of where animals are being killed. Um, at, at the time we started this project, that information was all on paper forms, and it was difficult to take a look statewide at what was going on, what the patterns were. And so we, we worked with them um, and with the Division of Wildlife to develop a system to use smartphones to, to report that information. So we went from having a pure paper system that was difficult to, to use information to having an electronic automated system uh, where our contractors report those animal locations with their smartphone and go right into a data centralized database and then get mapped immediately. And so that, that really changed um, the way we were able to address the problem. 
um, before it may take it may take months to years before the information was usable. Now it was instantaneous. We could address problems at the scale they were occurring on. So, for instance, there are areas where we have deer fencing, but there's still deer being hit on the roads. And when, when our maintenance crews see that, they know that they, are, they have the fences down somewhere or there's a gate open and they can go address the problem immediately and make the road safer for, mm. for our drivers. Let me turn to uh, David Stoner um, before we jump into some of the other topics. Uh, I wonder about the technology and the, the change in technology, what that's allowed researchers to, to do. Well, there are two advances that really have revolutionized our science. One is the, the uh, transfer of GPS technology from purely uh, military purposes in the 90s, or, well, prior to the 90s, into collars that animals wear. And what they do is they're programmed to record a location at certain time intervals throughout the day. And so historically, we we tracked animals with radio telemetry. And the limitation there was that we had to be out in the field trying to get find them and then follow them. And in, in mountainous terrain, this becomes exceedingly difficult. And so much of it was limited to tracking animals by airplane, which is... Uh, extremely expensive, and even that, um, they get away from us. So the GPS that the animals are wearing on an individual basis gives us anywhere from 2 to to 12 locations per day, which can then be mapped out. And so we get a very intimate view of the terrain these animals are using, the rates of speed, where they're spending their time, where they're they're denning or giving birth, uh, migration patterns, and uh, food habits. And so the second advancement has been the use of satellite imagery in conjunction with these GPS data in that we have satellites rotating around the earth that are taking imagery of the earth on a daily basis and recording um, what we call uh, plant phenology. So the changes in in plant maturity over the seasons. And then on top of that, snow conditions. And both of these interact in a way to really strongly influence how animals move and use habitat. And so we've been able to integrate these two technologies, the satellite imagery mapping the environmental conditions, and then the the uh, uh, locations of individual animals and how they overlay on those those dynamic environmental conditions. And these advances in, in, in knowledge are driven by the technology is that uh has that uh, changed uh, policy? Has that changed the, our understanding? It certainly changed our understanding of animal behavior and their their um, their seasonal resource needs. It's I think much of this is moving into the realm of policy. Slowly, what we're finding is that historically we thought of animal migrations as being really um, strongly elevational. So they they move up in the summertime and down in the winter, and and that is generally true, but. Uh, the more animals we mark, uh, the more we're finding that there are many, many strategies, and the movement is is tremendous, uh, both in terms of migration, so seasonal movements, but also in terms of, of life stages. So one of the things that I um, monitored during my dissertation work was where young animals go after they leave their parents, and we're finding animals moving across jurisdictional boundaries, and, and you know, we the state boundaries to us are meaningful from a, a legal standpoint or say the policy decisions of individual legislatures and, and uh, state agencies and those vary. But the animals 
are not responding to those sorts of, of phenomena. So it really opens the question of how do we as, as human societies uh, create policy that will be beneficial to animals that have um, their foot in both, both um, camps, so mm-hmm. to speak. I might mention uh, one illustration of what you just said is the wolves in the Yellowstone, greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, And uh, we're going to have a program on uh, uh, a new book. I just want to put a plug in for this. On Wednesday, we'll be interviewing Nate Blakesley, author of American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Perception in the West. And a very famous wolf, uh, 06, who was killed uh, a couple years ago. Uh, But back to to Utah. Um, So Daniel Olson... Maybe you could outline some of the concerns that, uh, that uh, in the interaction of the migration that you study of wildlife and, and society and, and humans. One interaction you mentioned, we mentioned before, was, uh, 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 you know, highway crossings, roadkill. Takes out a lot of deer, for example, every year. Yeah, that, that's a good question, Tom. Um, so one of the things we one of the things we think about a lot as scientists is how to keep the landscape connected, so our animals have freedom to move, and what that allows them to do is to adapt to changes that are occurring, whether those are seasonal changes or changes that 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 humans um, are causing in the environment. It, it, having that ability to move. Uh, let's lets them make choices and decisions that um, can increases their fitness and survival, and so um, part of the importance of of having tracking technology and understanding how the animals move and use the landscape lets us better know how to how to keep the landscape connected, so we can see these corridors where large numbers of animals are moving across roads. Um, through through developed areas, and we can uh, find ways to to keep those open, so those those historical movements can stay in place. Of course, uh, traumatic for the driver as well, right? If you, I, I know in <laughs> in the summertime, if I'm driving at dusk, I, I know white knuckles through through some areas because you know I don't want to injure or kill a deer. I also don't want to end up being injured. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So the. Um, Wildlife vehicle collisions, we, we have a lot of them in the state. Um, so a few years ago, we estimated there are about 10,000 deer, mule deer that are being killed in vehicle collisions. And we also have elk that are killed and moose. And so moose vehicle collisions are really dangerous. Um, a lot of times they result in serious injuries. And the average cost for moose vehicle collision is over $30,000. So wow. expensive and uh, very dangerous for drivers. And so... Um, being able to better understand how animals are moving on the landscape lets us put in mitigation measures so we can we can put crossings that either go under the road or over the road to, so those animals can still migrate, still make the movements they need to, but make our roads safe for drivers. So, yeah. yeah. Now you got me worried about uh, hitting a moose. I, I, so yeah, you don't, you don't thanks. Want to hit a moose. Thanks a lot for that. I, I, now I'll worry about that. But uh, uh, so, uh, what are some of the mitigation? You mentioned, uh, you know, passages under or over the road. Um, is, that, is that showing success? Yeah, they're really successful. So oftentimes, when we install crossings, we also uh, put exclusionary fencing. So about they put in eight foot fencing along the roadside so the animals can't cross wherever they want to but we funnel them to the crossings where they can cross safely so it, it keeps animals off the road but still is allow, still allows them to move mm-hmm. uh so um david stoner um 
wondering about some of the other uh, aspects in the you know wildlife migrations intersecting with us us humans we've we've been talking about roadways what are some of the other concerns well some of the you know the, i think what daniel brings up in terms of uh, road crossing is is one of the biggies one of the ones as you mentioned is clear to us we we see it we experience it uh, agricultural depredations are another uh, major source of conflict animals migrating out of the mountains in the winter time and then ending up in ag fields and their economic damages from that which is really the whole reason hardware ranch was started initially in the 40s was to keep elk out of the ag fields uh, and then the other one is simply that in an era when we recognize the value of habitat for conservation of these animals uh, what we're talking about facilitating their their seasonal migrations becomes the linchpin to it all because we can fence them off from certain areas and and improve driver safety but if they are not able to migrate then that means they're trapped on in an area that's probably under um, the, the snow snow depth gets too deep for them to survive and so to conserve these animals we facilitate migration and there are economic implications from that namely through sport hunting and that this is an underappreciated um, piece of the state economy in terms of sportsmen and how much money they spend on an annual basis in pursuit of game generally uh, big game so when we say big game large mammals deer elk moose sheep etc uh, is upwards of 350 million dollar input to the economy on an annual basis and so as we lose migrations what that means is we lose populations as well or or they're diminished and that, that has um, a multiplier effect there it means fewer hunting opportunities and there are many small towns uh, in rural areas around the state that benefit from this impulse of, of tourism hunting-based tourism and so um, there are, are reasons that um, migration is important to maintain beyond simply um, the ethics of animal conservation that that you know as daniel points out the uh, road conflicts are a winning proposition all the way around everyone benefits we we have fewer dead animals and, and people are are safe similarly uh, from these economic standpoints this is getting into what uh, you, you were talking before we went on the on the air about the economics of conservation yeah right absolutely yeah, and, uh, this this is a non-trivial input to the economy not just in the state but nationally uh, some estimates put uh, wildlife related recreation and this includes hunting fishing bird watching photography you know all of it the festivals at uh, over 150 billion dollars per year in the United States which amounts to somewhere between 1 and 2% of the gross domestic income so mm. it's distributed widely it's not a, a single monolithic industry um, but it's tremendously important and so I think I think um, conservation is more than just an aesthetic value and often it gets portrayed that way that we have these choices between uh, you know conservation or the the environment or the economy we often hear this uh, hear, hear it portrayed that way but that's um, in many cases not not accurate that uh, con conservation has a a real benefit mm. 
If you just joined us, we uh, the topic of the uh, the title of the show today is Where the Animals Go. That's the uh, title of a book. We talked to the book authors in the first half of the program. We're bringing these issues uh, back home to Utah with David Stoner, researcher with USU's Quinney College of Natural Resources, and Daniel Olson, wildlife migration coordinator with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Uh, Daniel Olson, just uh, parenthetically, um, technology increases. It, it allows scientists to track migration to, as we heard in the first half of the program, uh, in many ways uh, get better research on, on animal behavior. But uh, as brought to mind as we were t- talking about hunting, uh, technology can also benefit hunters. Imagine there, there's increase in, in hunters being able to find animals, and I wonder if, if policy then has to be adjusted on how many permits we give out. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question, Tom. So I think we're really in the midst of a technological revolution. And, and at, at the Division of Wildlife, we're trying to embrace that and really move forward. So our, our goal is to be able to, to put more tracking collars out on more deer and elk and other species to better understand how they use the landscape, but also be able to manage all that data that's coming into us. So um, <clears throat> right now we have a database with over a million points with animal locations and that 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 data we're collecting is just going to increase exponentially as the technology improves. So as David mentioned, like for the past few years, we've been getting a location every 12 hours on the animals we monitor. The new collars that we'll be using will get a location every two hours. So the information is just increasing rapidly. So we're building infrastructure right now to be able to handle that data uh, and manage it and be able to share it. So we want to be able to provide all this information we're collecting to our partners so they can they can make good decisions. So like at the BLMs in, in the process of doing one of their management plans or land use plans, they'll be able to pull in data from the species that we monitor and incorporate it. And so that, that's really our plan is to be able to share the data and, and provide some information to the public too, uh, but uh, do it in a way that doesn't compromise the, the health and well-being of, of the animals we're monitoring. Okay. I want to direct this to both of you, starting with Daniel Olson. How can we accommodate large-scale animal movements? We get better data on where they are and where they go, and how to better accommodate that and, I guess, live with the animals. Right. So I think one of the keys to that is is really to, for us to be able to scale up and do do meaningful research at, at, at the scales that we're impacting the landscape, we have to have a lot of partners. So it, it requires pulling everybody together, our, our federal agencies, our state agencies, our conservation groups, our, our landowners in, into, the, into, the, into the mix and getting everybody together and, and developing and pulling the resources together to do these large-scale studies. And so that, that's really the, the direction that we're trying to go at the Division of Wildlife right now. Mm. Same question to you, David Stoner. What, how, how are we developing new, I guess, uh, policies or uh, or plans to to better accommodate uh, animal the, migration? Some of the models that we're developing really help us make decisions at big scales, and this has been another benefit of this these technologies that we're discussing. Is that historically we would mark a sample of animals on a given study site or management unit and make decisions from there. But now uh, Daniel's program, he's marking animals all over the state. And so we can look at how animals move under a variety of conditions. And what we see is that here in the northern part of the state, we're impacted by heavy snows. That really is the driving factor. Uh, Elsewhere, that is not the case. And so we can tailor 
policy and or mitigation measures to what the constraints are on animal populations in the localities in which they live. And, you know, it's important to recognize that migration, animal movement generally is not random or haphazard. It really is quite predictable. Um, and what we're able to do with the satellite imagery that I, I uh, mentioned earlier is make predictions about when the animals move. So the timing and then the routes uh, through the GPS uh, collars. And then we can focus, say, land purchases, uh, mitigation, uh, land uh, habitat restoration efforts in relatively small areas that have a, a disproportionately large impact. So if the deer uh, need a, a corridor that's only a, a, you know, a few acres wide, uh, we can target our resources on that to salvage or, or conserve an important seasonal movement uh, and where it's targeted it's very specific. We can, we can get ahead of it, too, in areas, parts of the state that are not undergoing rapid growth. We can target these areas right now before that land is under different pressures. Mm -hmm. So it's really a, um, allows us to plan, gives us a lot of foreknowledge or predictive abilities to target how we allocate resources for wildlife conservation. Just to have a couple minutes left, uh, uh, start with this with Daniel Olson, is, is there a question that's still out there, a question that you would like answered, would be very beneficial to have answered? So uh, I think what we're finding out with animal movement, that it's really specific to the area. So it's difficult to take what you learn in one part of the state and extrapolate it to another part as far as migration goes. And so what we're really trying to do is to fill in all the holes where we don't know a lot about migration. And right now we're starting with, with, with deer, and then we'll move on to, to elk and other species because we have funding to do that right now. But it's really to try to build a map across the state of where all these migration corridors are at. Hmm. Same question to you, uh, David Stoner. Is there, is there a question? I guess a scientist always has further questions, right? What's, what's, oh, yeah. what's the question on your mind right yeah. now? Well, one of the things that, that I'm really interested in and that I think will dovetail into Daniel's program uh, with the, the DWR is uh, the spatial requirements of animals under different environmental conditions. And so some of the preliminary work that I've been involved with, we can look at uh, the home range size, which is your previous guest uh, defined as the, you know, the area that a, an animal needs over the space of a year or so. Um, how that home range size varies with conditions such as the productivity of the environment, that, which amounts, said in plain language, the caloric density of a given piece of habitat. Now, that varies tremendously, and so with that information, we can see how much space do deer need under certain conditions in certain areas. And then, of course, the uh, you alluded to Yellowstone. We have predators that depend on on deer as well as a food resource, how do they react to those changes across space and time? And then how do we as a society uh, create policy that will allow these animals to persist in our landscapes, uh, even in the face of, of tremendous population growth and, and land use change? Well, we reached the end of our conversation. Very interesting, uh, important ongoing work and uh, from both of our guests in this half of the program. David Stoner is researcher with 
USU's Quinney College of Natural Resources. Thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure, Tom. And Daniel Olson is Wildlife Migration Coordinator with Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. Thanks to you. Thanks, Tom. Our thanks uh, to uh, our guests in the first half of the program, authors of the book, Where the Animals Go, James Cheshire and Oliver Uberti. I've been referencing throughout the program today our Wednesday program, which may be of interest to you if you're interested in today's topic. The The book is American Wolf, A True Story of Survival and Obsession in the West. We'll be talking with the author, Nate uh, Bla- uh, Blakesley. Uh, this is the story of the rise and reign of 06, the celebrated Yellowstone wolf and the people who loved or feared her. It's coming up on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Kristen Munson, Features Reporter for Utah Public Radio. UPR is a community-based organization, and we want to hear from you. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at this station, we'd love to hear from you. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IAMUPR. Thanks for listening. This is Ted Twinting, and I am a development officer with Utah Public Radio. Underwriting with UPR allows you and your business to capture the attention and ears of informed, educated, and savvy consumers across the state of Utah. To learn more about becoming a sponsor with UPR, call our development team at 435-797-3141. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.